This week, the Comics Guys will explain the history of DC, part one. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Uh, I'm Steve Tasker, I'm here with Darren Watts. Hello everyone. Uh, and today we're going to go over the history of DC Comics. Now, this is a big history. They're one of the biggest companies out there. And so this is going to be a three-part episode. And so we're going to start at the very beginning with not DC Comics, but actually National Allied Publications. Right. We want to make a special shout out to Ken Quattro and his Comics Detective blog, which uh, has provided a lot of information over the years on the background of this sort of thing. And to Gerard Jones, who wrote a book called Men of Tomorrow, that you know, was basically kind of tells the gangster history, the mobster history of early comics in the 30s. So in order to start, as you said, we have to start with National Allied. And so we're starting with a guy named Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. And if you're not familiar with him, he was the guy who basically founded the first company that turned into DC. He was born in 1890 grew up in Oregon, where his mother was the publisher of a woman's magazine called The Club Journal. After his father died, she remarried a uh, teacher who was also a stockbroker and had made a bunch of money right at the turn of the century. And so he grew up in this very kind of artsy crowd that was very politically active, had a fair amount of money, and was, you know, by Oregon standards, was a, you know, very kind of like a wealthy family. And he spent a lot of time riding horses. He loved horses. He played polo professionally or semi-professionally, I guess, and trained people, showed horses, that kind of thing. And so when he turned 22, he joined the army and, of course, joined uh, the cavalry immediately, where he very quickly went from a second lieutenant to a major, traveled around the world. He was a soldier under Pershing in Mexico, where he chased Pancho Villa around for several months. He fought the Bolsheviks in Siberia, you know, as a uh, captain in the cavalry. And he was then promoted. He got a job as a major. He got a rank of major where he was leading a, an entire battalion of Buffalo soldiers, of African-American soldiers during World War I. Did not see a lot of combat in that stretch, mostly because they would not send colored soldiers into combat. So they did a lot of uh, cleanup work, you know, dealing with battlefields afterwards, you know, bringing wounded to medics and that kind of thing and holding territory that they'd already held because they did not trust that uh, African-American soldiers would be reliable in combat. And they certainly would not put an African-American person, soldier in charge of a unit like that. After World War I, he retired to France where he married a Yugoslavian noblewoman and wrote a series of letters to President Warren Harding that criticized the army and particularly how they handled their African-American soldiers. And this got in a fair amount of trouble with the army, with individual soldiers who were upset with him. The head of West Point actually threatened to kill him at one point. While he was living on a base in France, he either, depending on which version of the story you believe, was the victim of an attempted assassination by people who disagree with him about his uh, complaints about the treatment of African-American soldiers, or maybe was just shot while he was drunkenly trying to break into a friend of his house because he did not want to walk all the way back to his house because he was drunk. And a guard saw him going in through the window and shot him in the ear. His family insists, of course, that this was a you know political assassination attempt. That's a hell of a shot, mm -hmm. just right in the ear. Absolutely, yeah. 
anyway, by 1922, he's now 32 years old. He was court-martialed specifically for publishing the letters and being critical of the army to the president. They found him guilty. They did not take away his commission, but it was clear from that point on he was never going to get promoted again. So he decided to resign his commission and he moved from France back to New York City with his wife. There he took up a writing career where he was writing military history books and then also got into, in the early 30s, writing military fiction for the pulp magazines, especially the big ones like Argosy and Street and Smith and that sort of thing. So he was making a decent living, just kind of writing about the military, both non-fiction and non-fiction, and watching how pulps, the pulp publishing world worked. And he saw in 1933, 1934, that the first comic books were successful financially. The most famous one of those was called Famous Funnies. And what Famous Funnies worked, the, the way that it worked was that they would get licensing rights from newspaper comic strips, right? There, were, there was no comic book that was publishing new material. All they did was publish collections of existing newspaper strips where they would put, you know, a year's worth of Mutt and Jeff in a comic book or they would put a year's worth of The Yellow Kid or whatever, all of these, you know, like popular newspaper strips. And so Famous Funnies is making an awful lot of money on the newsstand as kind of one of the very first comic books to be in a, you know, comic book format. And he says, well, okay, I'm all of the major licenses out there for newspaper strips have already been taken, right? There's no way I can make money doing it this way. Maybe what we should try to do is reverse the order of this, right? Like we're going to turn the program around. If I came up with a comic book idea and made a comic book with original material, I probably wouldn't make any money selling comics that way for it. But if the intellectual property of those comics was good, I could then turn around and sell those to the newspaper syndicates and get them published in newspapers, which is clearly the way to make money in this business, right? Like he's like the, the people in the, in the business who have money are the big newspapers and the syndicates. All of these tiny little comic book publishers, you know, are in fact paying the big companies for the rights to do this. He was like, well, the, the money flow should go the other way, right? I should get the people with the money to pay me for my cool new ideas for cartoons for comics, right? Right. That makes perfect sense. Right. So this is kind of a fairly brilliant idea. And so he creates a comic book that will be called New Fun Comics and creates a company in 1934 called National Allied Publications to publish this comic. And it works reasonably well. He, he doesn't lose money at first for it. The title changes over the course of its first six issues. He puts out six monthly issues of it. And by the end of it, he has changed the title to More Fun Comics because New Fun was actually too close to a couple of other comic titles that were out there. And it works reasonably well, enough to the point where he decides to make a second one in 1935 that he will just call New Comics. Again, that title's not going to stick for it. And so that title eventually gets changed to Adventure Comics. And Adventure Comics, if you're familiar with DC, was published continuously from the 30s well up to the late 70s, early 80s and was the home of Legion of Superheroes and Superboy and all that stuff. This is, in fact, kind of the, the, the earliest consecutively running DC comic uh, of its time. Now, he's not an, an artist or a writer, so he's got to get somebody 
to make the new comics that he's hoping to sell to the syndicates, right? And so he goes to a bunch of studios where there are people who are attempting to, who are either making or attempting to make newspaper cartoons and asks them for material, for new material that they haven't successfully sold yet. Among the people that he signs to work with him on this are a couple of guys from Cleveland, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who in fact create two new comic ideas for him, two new character sets for him. One is called Dr. Occult, which is a story of a uh, you know trench coat clad detective who solves occult mysteries with his magical powers and his ability to hypnotize and mesmerize people and stuff, who, depending on how you count things, is really one of the very first superheroes. And then he also creates a swashbuckler character called Henri Duval, who is a uh, French musketeer in the 17th century who has a bunch of swashbuckling adventures. And these characters appear in more fun comics uh, in the several of the first few issues, and he kind of builds up a relationship with them. We won't spend a whole lot of time on Siegel and Schuster in this episode because they're going to get a whole episode to themselves coming up in the future. But obviously, if you recognize the names, you know where this is going. Too much material for just this one. For just this one, right. Yeah, Siegel and Schuster need their own, you know, their story is fascinating all by itself. So we'll do a whole episode about them coming up. But anyway, back to Major Nicholson. So now here it is. It's 1936. He's been doing this for a year and a half. He's got two monthly comics that are doing okay. And the later issues do not sell as well as the first few did. And so he finds himself in debt to his printer at the time. He's got a couple of printer bills for printing all of these comics that he can't quite pay because he's just not making, he's not selling enough. And he's got a great new idea for a new comic because what's, what's really selling out there right now for pulps is detective stories, is crime stories. And he wants to make a new comic that will be nothing but different detective characters. And, you know, the format of the comic book, instead of doing a daily strip that's only, you know, eight or ten panels or whatever, of actually doing eight-page stories means that a comic book is a better format, a better uh, medium to put detective stories in, right? Because you can tell an entire story. You can have a crime and a solving of a crime and everything all in one sitting. Right. So he thinks this is a fabulous idea. However, he doesn't really have enough money to get all of this set up. So he goes to his printer, who is owned, which is owned by a guy named Harry Donenfeld, and he borrows a bunch of money from them and forms a new company with Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz. And we're going to talk about both of those guys in a minute. But they form this company uh, as a partnership specifically to put out this new comic called Detective Comics. And so the the company gets called Detective Comics Incorporated. And so this is the first actual company that has the DC, you know, letters, the DC initials in it for it, and will become the founding of DC, really. To go back to Harry Donenfeld, who will be tremendously important in in this story going forward, Donenfeld is a Romanian Jew, came to America as a child right around the turn of the century. He was born in 1893. And he came to America when he was seven or eight years old with his family. His large family with a bunch of older brothers. And his family was poor. 
in New York City, and as was kind of the standard in the time for it, very quickly he wound up in a bunch of gangs as a kid. He was not a particularly good student. He was out of school a lot and running with various gangs in the streets of New York City, as were his older brothers at different times. One of his brothers got into more respectable business by starting a printing company. And he worked as a salesman for that printing company for a while, even in his teens. Uh, we're talking about like, you know, 1920 or so. And this is during Prohibition obviously. And so they, with his connections, Carl Donenfeld is connected to several of the New York City mobs. And he goes into business for Frank Costello, one of the kind of legendary New York mobsters, bringing booze illegally into the country from Canada because he was getting his paper for printing from Canada. And so they would literally hide whiskey and beer and kind of other alcohol in the shipments that they would get of pulp paper from Canada and bribe people at the borders not to pay any attention to uh, you know the extra bottles of booze and the extra cases of booze that were coming in with their cases of paper. And so this was very successful and an excellent way to make money and Donenfeld became pretty rich quite young. So, you know, through Costello, Donenfeld eventually became, you know, pals with Arnold Rothstein and Lucky Luciano and uh, a bunch of other mobsters. And with the money he was making doing smuggling for them, he was able to get better and better printing deals for his printing company, his magazines like Cosmopolitan and that sort of thing. He was doing all of the printing for because Randolph Hearst also, shall we say, spent a lot of time hanging out with mobsters and the mobsters told him that Donenfeld was a good guy and he should work with him. So eventually Donenfeld, who uh, you know never finished high school or anything like that, wound up forcing his brothers out of the company and took over the entire printing company for this, which he basically ran with the assistance of the mobs. He very early on was a friend of Mo Annenberg, and Mo Annenberg was the guy who ran the Daily Racing tab. So they had, you know, a bunch of pulp magazines and newspaper jobs that kept them in money for quite some time for this run. Obviously, running the Daily Racing was a tremendously profitable operation for a printer. So in the 20s, Harry, who's now, you know, in his 30s, gets into pulp publishing along with pretty much everybody else you know who was doing that sort of thing the daily racing tab was kind of like his introduction to the idea of newsstand sales for magazines and of course very early on kind of like looks around at the subjects that are selling and settles on spicy pulps spicy pulps are the ones that were you know shall we say had racy content had a lot of nudity had stories of sex and violence and that sort of thing and of course angered you know there were a lot of people very upset about the content of these shall we say r-rated magazines at least if not x-rated that were being sold on newsstands where literally anybody could get their hands on fiorella laguardia who was the mayor of new york at the time campaigned on public decency and insisted on, you know, part of his campaign was that he was going to clean up the pulps. He was going to clean up newsstands and that kind of thing. And so they went after all of the publishers who had naked ladies in their magazines. And Donenfeld was one of the major ones for that. And so Donenfeld was arrested. His company was taken into court and everything. He was charged with obscenity and, you know, was facing a fairly serious jail term. And so his defense was that as publisher, he did not know that anybody was slipping any boobs and you know naked women into his magazines, that this was all done without his awareness or his permission. And in fact, it was the fault of one of his employees, who was a good friend of his and also a mobster, named Herbie Siegel. 
Herbie Siegel had been part of the Costello mob and basically was paid by Costello and Donenfeld to say that, in fact, it was his fault that all the boobs wound up in these magazines and that Donenfeld didn't know anything about it. And Herbie Siegel, in the end, wound up doing two years in prison for obscenity charges on behalf of his bosses. And so when he got out of prison, having done his time for the mob, Donenfeld and Costello promised Siegel that he had a job for the rest of his life. He basically had a no-show job. The mob would take care of him forever. And Herbie Siegel continued to show up at work at what eventually turned into the DC offices well into the late 60s and 70s. <laughs> he was still there, you know, when he was 60, 70 years old. And every night or every day, he would come into the office and go into the break room at the DC comics offices while, you know, Superman and Batman and everything are being published around him. He would light up the biggest, fattest, ugliest stogie you could find, pour himself a big pot of coffee, get out the racing forms, get on the phone, and basically bet on horses all day long. And none of the kids in the DC offices had the guts to ask him why he, you know, what his job was, why he was there. Because this guy was clearly, you know, even though he was like 60 years old at this point, was a big, tough-looking mobster guy with a broken nose and, you know, just was terrifying to them. All these, you know, kids in uh, working at DC at the time didn't have the guts to actually say anything to him. And it wasn't, it would always be the case that eventually somebody would get the guts to go upstairs and ask Julie Schwartz what the deal with Herbie was. And they would explain to him, well, Herbie did two years in prison, you know, for our early mobster forebears, basically. And he has been promised a free job for the rest of his life which we continue to honor 30 years later. Seeing that, kind of going back to the 30s with this, Donenfeld and his buddy, Jack Leibowitz, who, you know, was a friend of his, basically see that Spicy Pulps is probably not a great business plan anymore. There's too much pressure from the police. It's not that they're against publishing them or anything for it, but it's just too much of a hassle to be constantly dealing with the police on this sort of thing. So they start looking at other ways to get into business. They start a distributor, called Independent News. They start printing for unions. They do union pamphlets and that sort of thing. They start working with Margaret Sanger, her uh, pro-contraceptive pamphlets, which were very controversial at the time, telling people the population control and that sort of thing for this. And all of these things basically were part of their, anything that annoys Fiorella LaGuardia is a good plan, right? They would do anything that was controversial, anything that sounded like it was going to, you know, like start some trouble. Even though they were both kind of like way to the left politically for this, they were certainly, Leibowitz was certainly a socialist. Donenfeld was a little too much of a capitalist for that, but they still would regularly meet with the mob once a week. They would go to the Waldorf Astoria barbershop with Frank Costello and sit and then have a haircut and a man manicure uh, there with Costello and talk about, you know, like what their plans were and their connection and basically pay off the mob for what they were doing. So in 1938, Detective Comics gets published. Number one comes out. It's got a brand new feature by Siegel and uh, Schuster in it called Slam Bradley, who is a two-fisted pulp detective. And uh, it's a pretty big hit. It does pretty well. They're, they're, they're selling quite well with this. And Leibowitz and Donenfeld kind of get together and say, I think the problem here is that Wheeler Nicholson, as much, you know, as, as much of a good salesman and good, you know, like, you know, charming guy is uh, for us, he's just very not good, not very good at running a business. And if we got rid of him, we could actually turn this into something. These comics could actually be, uh, be, be worth something. 
And so Donenfeld, in early 1938, sends Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson and his wife on a cruise. They pay for him to go on a cruise to Cuba and get him out of the country for a while, which was, in theory, to work up new ideas, quote unquote, come up with uh, new ideas for new comics and you know new characters that should appear in comics. And while he is gone, they basically change the locks and shut him out of everything. Uh, Harry basically sues Nicholson for the money that he had originally owed that, uh, you know, he had never, Nicholson had never gotten around to paying back those printer bills once he went into business with the guy he owed them to, right? It was still on the books as a debt that was owed to Donenfeld. And so Donenfeld took him to court while he was out of the country. And so when he came back to the country, he kind of like finds himself in the middle of all of this and effectively pushes Detective Comics, Inc., the company that they, you know, both had, had formed together into bankruptcy court. And a judge who was, uh, his name was Abe Menon, the judge in that case, in the bankruptcy court, was a Tammany Hall buddy of the mob, was basically Frank Costello and Lucky Luciano had gotten that judge elected to his position in the first place. And so Abe, in on the deal with Harry for this, appoints himself as the new president of the firm while it's in bankruptcy, and then sells all of its assets to Independent News, the distributor that Harry and Jack owned. And so, you know, they have basically taken Nicholson out of the company. In order to keep Nicholson from putting up too much of a fight, they basically gave him a percentage of the sales of More Fun, of the first comic that he had done, which they didn't own it, you know, really own anything of, they hadn't created, and said, okay, yeah, you can have a percentage of the sales of that, and otherwise we never want to hear from you. That didn't last very long. It turned out Nicholson you know, for, for what it's worth, Donenfeld and Leibowitz were right. Nicholson was not a good businessman. And within a few months after this kind of like separation between the two of them, he had to put National, his original company, into bankruptcy as well. And promptly, DCI, Detective Comics, Inc., bought National out of the bankruptcy. And so Nicholson gets out of the comic book business, you know, kind of like has lost a bunch of money and uh, is kind of, you know, not feeling very good about the whole comics business at that point. He retires to Long Island and goes back to writing books and uh, newspaper articles and everything about the army, about the military. And he eventually dies in 1965, never has anything to do with comics again. Sad end. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. But, you know, so now we have Detective Comics Incorporated is now the corporate head also runs national, right? Like as a company for this, It, it, it bought it out of bankruptcy. So basically, they now have a comic book company that's publishing three comics a month, doing reasonably well in sales for it. They're, you know, pretty happy with how things are going. Now, another guy comes along whose name is Max Gaines. And Max Gaines will go on to be much more famous for other companies later, but he's really young at this point, 1938. And he wants to start a comic book company too. And he sees that Donald Feld and Leibowitz are making all kinds of money with their comics. And, you know, they're always looking for a new opportunity to do something. So they loan some money to Max Gaines so that he can start a comic book company called All-American Comics. So while DCI is over on Lexington Avenue for this, All-American Comics is set up over on Lafayette. Basically, it's, you know, a number of blocks away from it. And so in order to uh, kind of like keep an eye on their money and what Max was doing with their money, Donenfeld says, if we're going to loan you this money to start your company, you have to make Jack a partner. 
Jack has to be on the plan, you know, on your your uh, your board and everything for it, so that he can report to us about what you're doing. And so Max Gaines, who is himself also is is a himself a writer as opposed to any of the people that have been involved in this in the first place, begins putting out a comic called All American Comics, which doesn't come out until April of '39. And that, compared to the individual comics that Donenfeld has been putting out for this, is a smash hit. That is huge. Like, everybody loves this comic. He does the, the main, it does mostly a comedy, but also some science fiction. The lead character in All-American is a pilot, is a military pilot called Hop Harrigan. And Hop Harrigan is so popular that he will eventually get a couple of movies based on him. He'll get a serial, all kind of other stuff. So he's, he's a very successful character, and All-American is making money. So Gaines is like, well, clearly I'm, I'm on the right track with this. He creates a couple more comic books. He creates movie comics, which basically just does like comic versions of popular movies at the time from the 30s, basically, and just kind of retells them in comic book form. And he also gets the reprint rights to the newspaper strip Mutt and Jeff. He's got enough money at this point that he can afford to actually do what the other earlier comic book publishers were doing, get a major newspaper strip character and get the rights to reprint all of their, all of their newspaper strips for this in one big collection. So All American is making cash, is making bank, and Donenfeld is quite delighted with himself. Donenfeld and the other people working in, you know, like the DCI offices at that point have stayed in touch with Siegel and Schuster. Because, you know, Siegel and Schuster at this point are providing them with three different regular features for them. And so they're like, okay, you know, hey, what else you got? What's your, what's your new thing? Siegel and Schuster at this point have been trying since 1933 to sell a character that they had created really back in high school to newspapers. They thought it was too good an idea to waste on comic books at the time. Right? And it was the story of this hero who came from another planet and, you know, came to Earth where he had incredible powers, super strength and super speed and everything, and wore kind of a circus outfit and a cape, and he was going to be called Superman. And they, uh, you know, had written up multiple versions of this character at different times and tried to sell him to various syndicates for five years, and it hadn't gone anywhere. They had not been successful. So eventually they say, you know what, this isn't going to work. The newspapers just don't want this. We're doing pretty well with the stuff that we're selling straight to the comics. Let's make a comic book out of Superman. And of course, that turns out to be, you know, Action Comics number one basically becomes the first ever, you know, creates the entire idea of the superhero, right? Effectively. Right. I mean, this puts, uh, you know, that first story is now the fourth comic being published by National. It also includes, they get several other pieces. I mean, Superman is just eight pages of that first comic, right? And so that first issue also create, is the first appearance of Zatara, the magician. It's the first appearance of Tex Thompson, who will eventually become a costume superhero, though in his first stories, he is not, not wearing a mask. But this is obviously blows away anything that had been done by either All-American or National at this point in sales kids grab hold of this on a level that has never never been seen before. Superman is outselling not just every other comic book on the stands within two or three months, but it's outselling pulps, right? It's outselling the regular magazines for adults and that kind of thing. This is moving on a level that nobody has seen before. And so very quickly, all the newspaper syndicates who had ignored Superman 
in all of the efforts from, you know, by Siegel and Schuster to sell it to them, suddenly they want a piece of this now, right? They see within a few months that this is, you know, it comes out in the summer of 38, the actual comic book comes out. By the beginning of 1939, they've got a deal with the uh, newspaper syndicates cut by Donenfelds and Leibowitz, as opposed to by Siegel and Schuster themselves, to do a newspaper strip as well. Right. So Siegel and Schuster start doing not just all of the comics. They start, they get rid of most of the stuff they had been doing in other comic books because they just don't have time for it anymore. And so they are not only writing all of the Superman material in action, but they're also writing the newspaper strip for this. And it's actually in the newspaper strip where a lot of the details that we know of for Superman, I mean, in the, the first action, number one does introduce Lois Lane. The whole, you know, all, the whole story of Clark Kent and, and everything. It basically introduces briefly the fact that he, you know, was raised in the in the heartland somewhere for it. But we don't know a lot of other details, and we won't for quite some time. And it's the newspaper strip where they were doing a daily strip that introduces a lot of details, names Krypton as a planet, names Jor-El, names Lara, all of these characters that uh, will become really important are actually introduced in the newspaper strip. By summer of 1939, this is so action is selling so well that they Donenfeld and Leibowitz basically tell Siegel and Schuster they need to make a full comic just dedicated to Superman. And there had never once again, this is a brand new idea, right? There had never been a comic book like this dedicated to the stories of a single character, unless it was something that was doing reprints of a newspaper strip, right? Like Mutt and Jeff had their own comic. Superman is the first comic book character created for comics to have an entire comic to himself with his name on the title, right? Superman number one is the very first time that happens. So this is now making an enormous amount of money. Siegel and Schuster, of course, are not making very much of this money comparatively compared to what Donenfeld and Leibowitz are making, but they're doing all right. There's a, you know, it's kind of famously true that they sold that first story to BCI as a company for for $130, which is in modern day money, a little less than $2,500. And so that was basically, a, you know, it was $10 a page word rate, uh, you know, page rate for the story itself, which was, you know, a solid amount of money for, for the time for people doing the kind of business that they were doing. 10 bucks a page was not bad. And the only other thing they got for the rights to Superman basically was a contract to keep making Superman comics, right? So like they, you know, couldn't, uh, nobody else, they couldn't take it anywhere else. They couldn't give the strip to anywhere anybody else. It had to be Siegel and Schuster and had their names on it. And so by the time within a year or two, they are now paying Siegel and Schuster a pretty solid rate. They're paying them, you know, something like the 5,000, $7,000 a year, which once again, in, you know, 1930s depression era is a lot of money to put these out, but they're making so much more than that, right? And Siegel and Schuster, you know, Siegel could keep writing all day long. He was turning out, you know, a bunch of other material as well as writing Superman. But Joe Schuster just wasn't that fast an artist. And so he was very quickly having a great deal of difficulty doing all of the art for the action comics, Superman comics, and the Superman strip, uh, the newspaper strip. He just couldn't keep up. And so they had to finally say, uh, you know, it's okay to have somebody else besides you guys do this. And so the first ever artist to draw Superman, it comes in uh, Action Comics number 15, 
Fred Gardner is the first guy other than Schuster to draw the character at all on the cover. It's another year plus before eventually they have to call in entire other artists to do the interior material as well. But Schuster just can't keep up. And Jack Burnley is, in fact, the first non-Schuster artist to draw a Superman story. The other big thing, of course, now they are selling Superman merchandise, right? They're selling Superman pajamas and t-shirts and, you know, posters and all kind of other stuff. They're making just piles of cash that had never been seen in this business before. In 1940, they get a deal to do a radio show about Superman. That's Superman on the radio. Of course, that show will go on to be phenomenally successful again. It will run from 1940 until 1951. And over the time of the radio show, there will be 2,088 individual episodes. That's a staggering amount of episodes. It's a staggering number, especially when you consider compared to the number of actual comics that came out, right? I mean, there is just by material, there's so much more in the radio show than there was in the actual comics. Yeah. And it, for a great many people, their only introduction to the character, right? They only knew him from the radio show. You know, even if you weren't a, a kid collecting comics, buying comics from a newsstand, you turn on the radio, you know, he was on three times a week. Right. Doing these 15, 20 minute episodes for a stretch, you know, at the, at the height of his popularity. So everybody knew Superman. He is the biggest character in the world right then. Absolutely. Right then, he is, in fact, the biggest character in the world, the biggest, I mean, it's, it's, you know, he's bigger than Mickey Mouse. He's bigger than, you know, like anything. And Carl Donenfeld, of course, is swimming in cash and suddenly the most popular guy in the world, right? Because look at him. He has gone out and gotten, you know, respectable day job that is bringing in more money than the mobsters are bringing in doing illegal stuff, right? This is actually more profitable than crime, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Donenfeld takes to, he's basically kind of become a celebrity in New York at this point, right? He's, he's uh, so successful with this and everything that he takes to going to parties and going to clubs and everything, wearing a nice suit and, you know, jacket and everything, but wearing a Superman t-shirt underneath his suit and tie at these like, you know, underworld events and that kind of thing at these clubs, you know, and that kind of thing. Really showing off to all the other crew. At the slightest provocation, he would tear off his shirt and his jacket and reveal himself to be Superman. <laughs> right for this and just announced that he was superman and jump start making a spectacle of himself and everything and people thought this was hilarious right he's he is literally at the time kind of like one of the most successful mobsters in new york and he's doing it completely legitimate and they're you know they've never seen anything like that so. well, i think with the image of a mobster jumping up on a table and declaring the superman might be a good time to stop and pick up next time with the other big character that the Right. There's there's lots more story to go here. We've only we've only covered the first few years. Well, thank you all for listening. I've been Stephen Tasker. This is Darren Watts. Absolutely. Have a good night.